Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially. You can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. Um, speaking of, of, of uh exciting things that are going on. Um, next weekend is our baptism service. We do baptism once a quarter for those who have confessed Jesus as Lord throughout that quarter. And so uh, from the GBC family, if I understand right, we've got about nine people within our church family. They're going to be baptized next weekend and we celebrate that. That's really good news. Uh, of all ages... Uh, all, all walks of life. Um, now, let me explain. You guys be in 830 service. Let me kind of explain how this is going to work. Uh, those nine people that are part of the, just the regular rhythms of the GBC family, we're, we're inviting them um, to select either the 830 service or the 1130 service uh, for their time of baptism. Um, and the reason why we're doing that instead of having it at the 10 o'clock service is because um, we have had somewhere in the neighborhood of about 24 high school football players from Lake Placid High School that have given their life to Christ over the last several weeks and one coach. Um, and so I've been talking with Coach White, the head football coach down there. I'm saying, hey, man, let's, you know, they come to church here. Uh, several of the coaching families come to church here. Um, and so I was like, but, but you know, it's Lake Placid Kiss. So I'm like, hey, let's set up a baptism service on the football field, like on a Wednesday night. We'll invite the community to come out and see it. We'll video it. We'll have a meal. And he says, man, he says, I really feel like we need to have it at Grace Bible. Um, even though I know like these kids won't be able to connect, you know, they're probably not going to be able to connect personally like to the youth group and stuff because that's a long drive from where they live. We're hoping to get them connected in local youth groups in Lake Placid. He said, but a lot of these kids don't come from church families. And he says, there's a stigma in their mind about the body of Christ and about church. And he says, and I feel like if we can just get them into GBC together as a team and they can experience just that life-giving family called Grace Bible Church and have their baptism there, it just might change their mind about what church is all about. So next Sunday at 10 o'clock, we're going to have a baptism service with the Lake Placid football team, all those kids that have given their life to Christ, and the coaches that are followers of Jesus are going to be doing the baptizing. So pretty cool, huh? So... Uh, yeah, it's logistically, we're trying to get it all figured out right now. But I would tell you, like, come to 8.30. Um, the sermon time at the 10 o'clock is probably going to have to be a lot shorter. Um, so come to 8.30. You'll probably get the full um, sermon. Uh, 10 o'clock is going to have to be abbreviated. But I hope that some of y'all will hang around for the 10 o'clock, though, so you can be here to celebrate those kids being baptized, because I'm telling you, when those boys come up out of that water, this place needs to go bonkers. I want them to hear the voice of heaven ringing through these halls of Grace Bible Church so they can recognize like the body of Christ is full of the joy of Christ and that this is a place that they belong. And so, so anyways, uh, yeah, next week, just something to consider on your calendar for next week. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I usually have you open up to a place because we like to teach out of certain passages of Scripture. Uh, just, uh, matter in fact, flip on over to Matthew 11. Um, you're going to probably just have to camp out there. I'm going to hit a whole bunch of scriptures today. You're not going to be able to keep up. Just write them down as we go. If you get lost uh, and you want my notes, as always, just email me uh, here at the church, and I will just reply with the sermon notes if that's something that you want. Uh, but we're in a series right now called Come to Me. 
Uh, One of the sweetest invitations we get in all of the Word of God, and it came from the mouth of Jesus himself. An invitation we see in Matthew chapter 11, 28, 29, and 30, and I wanted you to turn there just so you know where it's at and so you can keep going back to it in your own personal life. But Jesus' invitation to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's such a sweet invitation because when you look at the criteria of who Jesus deems qualified to come, it's not come to me, all you who are spiritual and well-versed. It's not come to me, all you who have a good track record of church attendance and prayer. It's none of that. It's come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So whether you've got perfect church attendance or whether you stumbled in here after decades of running from God or you're somewhere in between, Jesus says, come. If you're weary and heavy laden, he will give you rest. The promise that he would rest you. And we saw last week his invitation and even told us how the mechanics of it will work. He says, I'm going to take your heavy yoke upon me, and I want you to take my yoke upon you because my yoke is light. And the reason why he says that, and Cameron showed you the picture, is when you got two oxen pulling, one of the oxen are very powerful, the other oxen doesn't have to work very hard. And Jesus, being the all-powerful king, can pull the load of your life. You just have to cling to Jesus, cling to the vine, stay yoked together with him. Keep your arms wrapped around him. And he'll be that pulling power of journeying through this life. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I bet you there are some weary and heavy laden folks in our midst this morning. I bet you peace and rest is something that some of us long for today for a million different reasons. I bet you. Jesus says, come. Come to me. He's very specific about where to come because he knew that there would come a day where we would be convinced that, well, when I'm weary and heavy laden, I need to go to church because then I'll find rest there. Or I need to listen to that song again because I'll find rest there. I did before. Or I need to read that book again. Jesus even goes as far to say, you won't find rest in my word unless you're looking for me in it. That's why I said, come to me. You've been there, you've done that, you've tried that, you listened to the sermon, you called the pastor, and it didn't work. And if it did, it didn't work for very long because here we are again in need of peace and rest. So Jesus says, just come to me. You've tried everything else, you come to me. And so we are talking about throughout this series over the next eight weeks, what it looks like to come to Jesus and the vehicles he's given us to drive into his arms. Uh, Now, some of you that grew up in church culture throughout your life, you probably learned these as spiritual disciplines is what the the terminology that's been used throughout my life. But for the sake of our conversation, we're calling them just our spiritual rhythms and practices in our life. Yes, it does take discipline. It is a discipline that we want to develop in our lives, but ultimately we're hoping to develop these as rhythms and practices in our lives so that we are regularly retreating to the feet of the Father and coming to Jesus in the ways that he has given us to come to him. And so we're going to look at a variety of different spiritual disciplines or rhythms and practices that are introduced in the Word of God that help us know how to get to Jesus through studying the Word and worship and praying and fasting and giving and serving and confession and self-examination and rest and Sabbath. Like we're going to look at all that stuff over these next several weeks, but just so you know, and I'm going to say this like a broken record. We're not inviting you into these spiritual disciplines and these rhythms and practices so that you can be more pleasing to God. 
Listen to me. We're not inviting you into studying the Word of God and worship and giving and serving and all the rhythms and practices of our faith so that your life would be more pleasing to God. Because the good news of the gospel is he already delights in you. You can't earn more favor than you already have. You can't. He already is enamored by your beauty. Isaiah told us he already has your name written on the palm of his hand. He already got up off the throne of heaven and came and lived a life we couldn't live and died on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made right with him. He paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we could be made right with him, so that we could have life. He gave up life so that we could have life. He couldn't be more in love with you than he already is. He's crazy about you. He's madly in love with you. He is moved by you. Scripture tells us he dances over you and sings over you when you are totally unaware of it even happening. He's crazy about you. And so these spiritual disciplines and rhythms and practices aren't means for us to be more pleasing to God. It helps us grow in our understanding and intimacy with the God of heaven and earth that already delights in you. So that you can learn what his love is like. So that you can learn to walk in that and understand what it means to live a life that is totally engrafted in the life of Christ Jesus. That your life, as Cameron often says, has been joined together with Christ Jesus, yoked together with him, abiding in him as divine. That's what these rhythms and practices are. And each one of these spiritual disciplines are meant to be vehicles that we drive into his arms, not just destinations that we land at so we can check our spiritual boxes. Understand what I'm saying. These these spiritual rhythms and practices, every single one of them, as important as they are to your relationship with Jesus, they are not your relationship with Jesus. As important as they are to your relationship with Jesus, they are not your relationship with Jesus. You know why? I said it a couple weeks ago. I'm going to say it again. Like You could have got up extra early this morning, read a whole book of the Bible, jumped in your car, listening to some really Christian-y music, came to church. You're feeling so spiritual. You're going to go to another church after this one. And yet be no closer to God today than you were yesterday. All of these rhythms and practices are meant to drive us into the arms of Jesus. They're not destinations, they're vehicles, they're roadmaps, they're pointers to get us to him. And so we need to be looking for him in these things. We need to be meeting up with him in these things and not just assuming that because we check the box that we know God or are walking with God. We're going to talk about that a little bit today in what may come across at certain points in the conversation as a bit rigid and offensive. And trust me, like, I don't mind offending folks if it's the truth that's offending them. The gospel is offensive, but my goal today isn't really to offend us at all. My goal today is for us to look at ourselves and have to ask ourselves some hard questions that we may be taking for granted in our walk with Christ. This week and next week, of all the spiritual rhythms and practices, like we're going to address what we believe to be the two most foundational that kind of give life to the rest of them, the Word of God and worship. The Word of God and worship are at the foundation because that's what's going to drive your prayer and your serving and your giving and your confession and your community and your Sabbath and everything else. And I can assure you, we're starting with the Word of God because we can't properly worship God unless we see Him clearly. And he is displayed in the scriptures. And so what's, 
What's the reality of your life is like, I can assure you, the more clearly you see God, the more you are going to worship him. You won't be able to help yourself. That, that doesn't work adversely. You don't see God more clearly and worship him less. Which really brings up the question is like, what does our worship life look like? And if it's bleak or weak, then you must not be seeing God very clearly. You know, in, this ain't even a part of the sermon, but I'm going to hit y'all with it anyway after I take a little sip of this tea. I hate tea. Who likes hot tea? That's gross. It's gross. Coffee's gross. I think I just like something warm on my throat on Sundays, you know what I'm saying? It's gross. That's disgusting. Gosh. You know, in, um, in Revelation 4, we see this picture of like the angels gathered in a throne room crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's a song that the angels have been singing since the day God created them. The throne room of heaven is saturated with worship because they see God so clearly that they can't help but worship him. So for those of y'all that don't like, you know, worship choruses that repeat over and over again, you won't like heaven because we're going to sing that one like on repeat. Your favorite worship song may not make the roster, but that one will. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, over and over and over again. And there's a reason why the angels keep singing this song on repeat. It actually goes back to the word that they're saying when they say holy, holy, holy. It's just this ancient Hebrew word, Kadesh, Kadesh, Kadesh. That's holy, 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 Kadesh, Kadesh, Kadesh. And if I was to translate that directly into English, it's more of like a phrase in our language or a sentence, Kadesh. And the idea of Kadesh is that like every time I open, like every time I blink and reopen my eyes, I see something more extraordinary and more majestic than I did before. That's what Kadesh means. So they sing holy, 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 Kadesh, Kadesh, Kadesh over and over again for all of eternity because every time they blink and behold the glory of God again, they see him even more beautiful, more clearly, and more majestic than they did before. So they can't stop singing. We're going to join in that chorus one day. This is why we want to see God. We want to grow in our ability to learn and see and know God in our lives. And the word of God is a foundational place that we learn to do that. And it's so central. And just so you know, like, I don't want to let the people off the hook. So this is obviously a sermon for people that aren't spending time in the word of God. Like you should. You probably know you fall into that category without me even continuing the conversation. But this isn't just for that group of people. This is also for the group of people in the room that spend so much time in the Word of God that they've actually stopped looking for God in the Word of God. It's more like a textbook to you, something to be read to start your day, something to be studied instead of a king to be discovered, instead of a love letter to be absorbed and transformed by. Jesus even had something to say. Yes, I'm going to get to those that like need to build the rhythm and habit of being in the Word so they can grow in their relationship with Jesus. But let me just speak to the ones that read the Word of God so much for so long that you've forgotten why you do it. Jesus pressed back on this. I read this a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to hit it again. John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. Jesus pressed back on religious people when it pertained to the Word of God by saying this, he said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But listen, it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to, what's that phrase? Come to me, that you may have life. 
Remember, this whole series is about Jesus' invitation to come to him. And Jesus just said to some really religious, really well-practiced, very disciplined church people, some of your disciplines you have become so good at that you've actually forgotten that they are vehicles to come to me, not just a destination for you to land, to know more. Jesus is not some intellectual ascent that we take. We meet Jesus when we bow our heart and our knees before him as King and Lord. Only then will he be discovered. Jesus even told us as much earlier in Matthew chapter 11 when he says, this mystery is hidden from the wise and understanding people and it is revealed to babies who know nothing because they're willing to bow, they're willing to believe. You know, there's a lot of Christian folks, um, too many people in Christendom these days, uh, especially folks that have been Christians for a long time, um, still don't know much about the Bible which is not good, it's a scary thing actually. Now don't get me wrong, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, we probably pretend to know a lot about the Bible, and we sure don't mind quoting it, we don't know if it's actually in there or not, but as long as it sounds churchy and spiritual and you know, godly, we assume like if it's a good and godly statement, then it must be in there somewhere. I mean, come on, look at all these pages, you know what I'm saying? Like, I've heard enough sermons in my life, I can just fire one off off the top of my head and make it up, and surely it's in there somewhere, right? You know what I'm saying? Sounds good, feels right. Sounds like Jesus or God would feel that way about it. You know, it's funny, and as a result, like, there's a lot of things that many of us believe and think that are in the Bible that aren't actually in the Bible. Lots of them. I've actually compiled a short list of some of the most common things that most Christians believe are actually in the Word of God that aren't actually in the Word of God. The point of it is to get our attention so that we can recognize that maybe we don't know what we think we know. There's a million examples, but I'm just going to give you a handful that I hear a lot that are pretty common within a church. I'll start out with the one that's least consequential so you can warm up your emotions so you don't get offended too bad by the rest of them. All right, the Bible says that one day in heaven the lion will lay with the lamb. When you find that verse, let me know. I know you got a painting in your house of the lion laying with the lamb, and that's cute and all, but it ain't in the Bible. It's not there. Isaiah speaks of some animals and kind of their interaction with each other. Lions laying with lambs isn't one of them, just so you know. But you're welcome to believe that if you want to. It really doesn't matter. I told you that's an inconsequential one. How about this one? Man, we say this a lot down here in the old, good old southeast. Well, the Bible says that God helps those who help themselves. Does it? The Bible I read says God helps those who couldn't help themselves on their best day. God helps those who help themselves. That's a nice thought. And we definitely want people to work hard and trust God, but the Bible doesn't say that. Not at all. How about this one? I hear this a, I hear this a, a lot, a lot. Uh, most funerals that I do, I hear this. Uh, when we have a loved one that's passed away, many of y'all probably said this before, heaven gained another angel. Well, just so you know, there aren't any vacancies in the angel ranks, Okay. <laughs> Now, I'm not trying to bust your chops about that. I get why we say that. It's kind of like a feel-good thing to say about our loved ones, and we, you know, we'd love to know that our, 
you know, our loved ones are there with God and, you know, or they got their wings or there's some chubby little cherubim sitting on a cloud playing the guitar, however you imagine it to go down. But like, the Bible doesn't say that when we die, heaven gains another angel. As a matter of fact, just so you know, you would not want that to be the end result of your loved ones, okay, uh, who, who know Christ Jesus. Um, and, and by the way, just so you know, just, just as a, an important side note, um, the only people that God accepts into his perfect kingdom of heaven are the ones that have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You know, and that, that's, that's hard to reconcile with. And Jesus even told us, you know, why does the path to destruction? In other words, most people, you know, even though they're nice folks, they're not going to ever come to the place in their life where they bow their hearts before Jesus as King and Lord. He says, narrow is the path to righteousness. Like there would re be relatively few people that got to that place in their lives. But it's only those people that confess Jesus Christ as Lord, that believe in him as Lord and King, that he died on the cross for our sins, that God rose him from the dead three days later. Like only those would be invited into the kingdom of heaven for all of eternity with God. And here's the good news is they won't become angels. See, right now, our rank in the world, in the spiritual world, like as we exist here on earth, we are a little lower than the angels on the pecking order of the heavenlies. But it, scripture tells us in Ephesians and Colossians, for example, that when we come to Christ Jesus as Lord and King, it's not just when we die, but on earth, when we come to Christ Jesus as Lord and King, that we are sat with him in heavenly places, and that we are invited, I'll give you a scripture reference here, Romans 8, 7, that we are now co-heirs with Christ Jesus. Co-heirs, you, you get that, right? If you had like a super rich daddy and a twin brother, y'all be co-heirs with the family fortune, the family name, the family company, like you get an equal portion of all of it. We are co-heirs with Christ Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. That's the word of God. I didn't say that. He said that. That's way higher than the angels who exist to just serve the will of God and go do what he tells them to do and deliver messages and do the stuff. Like we're going to outrank that in the kingdom of heaven. So much so, and I, this will be a whole nother sermon. I don't know exactly what Paul meant when he said this. He says that the saints, that, that's us, by the way, that's not the little statues you saw on the wall in the church you grew up in. The saints, those who have confessed Jesus as Lord, it says that the saints will judge the world and the angels. All right, that's 1 Corinthians Six, two, and three. You can look that up for yourself. That's a whole other discussion about what that means. We're not going to get into it today. Point being is heaven didn't gain another angel. And you better be thankful for that. That's a good thing. How about this one? The Bible says this too shall pass. Why y'all so quiet? Because you thought it really said that. You know what I'm saying? It don't. When y'all find it, let me know. But it ain't in there. The Bible doesn't say this too shall pass. Yeah, hopefully this too will pass. But there's no promise that it will pass. This too may not pass. I hope it does, trust me. And trust me, like, when I'm talking to God, I've got some things in my life I want to go ahead and pass on. But there's no, there's no statement in the scriptures that this too shall pass. The good news of the gospel is that we can find peace and rest no matter whether it passes or not. 
Like true, like when, when Chris talked about the peace that surpasses all understanding, that's the kind of peace that Jesus offers. Peace and rest regardless of whether it passes or not. That's the good news. That's what the Bible says. Oh, but the Bible says God wants us all to be happy. When y'all find that one, let me know. No. You know, God's highest priority in your life is not your happiness. It's your holiness. And if you're anything like me, if God's greatest work is going to be on my holiness and the transformation of my life, then there's going to be a lot of unhappiness for me. Because I ain't going to like what has to happen for my mind to change about stuff. For me to get over myself. For my pride to have to take a back seat. For me to lay down my life before Jesus is king. But it's his love for us that he does that. Oh, and yeah, by the way, if you truly come to a place of submitting to Jesus as Lord and King, yeah, you can find happiness and the holiness that he is transforming you into in your life. That's good news. That's good news. But his job isn't to make us happy or make us comfortable. It's to transform us and change us. But the Bible says that we're all God's children, aren't we? No, we're not all God's children either. As a matter of fact, John chapter 1, verse 12, write that down if that's one that you have struggled with. John verse 1, 12, chapter 1, verse 12 says, Only those who believed in him and have received him as Lord has he given the right to become children of God. We've all been created by him. We had a whole sermon on the Imago Dei being made in the image of God, but like being a child of God is altogether different. Literally being brought into his family and grafted in as co-heirs with Christ Jesus, what we talked about a few minutes ago. That comes as a result of believing and confessing and recognizing him as Lord and King of our lives. And that's not in the Bible that we are all children of God. How about this one? I hear this one a lot right here. Well, God would never give us more than we can handle. Believe it or not, by design, he often gives you more than you can handle. And the Bible doesn't say that he would never give you more than you can handle. Because of his love for you, just like Cameron talking about being equally yoked, and, or not equally yoked, but taking on the yoke of Christ and being able to enjoy like the peace and rest that comes from coming to Jesus. Like it is, it is as a result oftentimes of us getting to places in life where it was more than we could handle. Because if we could handle it, we wouldn't recognize our need for a savior and a king. We wouldn't recognize our need of saying, I can't do this. Only you can. Which is a great place to be if you've arrived at that place in your life. That's when you finally laid down your rope and started to pick up his. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, I was going to show you this one since this one's so commonly misunderstood. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is where most folks misunderstand that promise. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says it like this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He's not talking about trials, hardships. God won't give me more than I can handle. He's saying God would never allow you to be tempted beyond what he has equipped you to be able to get out of. And we're talking about sin struggles and things like that. So 
with all that said, I mean, you may have found yourself believing prior to that conversation some of those things landed in the Bible, and I get it. You know, culturally, people say those things all the time, and if you weren't regularly, like, just immersed in the Word of God, then that would be easy to kind of absorb because those sound real spiritual, everything that we just said. But let me just ask you in your personal life, like, what do you believe? I just gave you five or, you know, eight or ten, and, and there's a million other examples, but what do you believe in your life that is not true. Oh, nothing, right? You, we've all cornered the market of truth, right? No, listen, Grace Bible, what do you believe in your life that is not true? And probably even better question is, are you in the word of God enough to know the difference of whether what you believe is true or not? That's the question. This is an important discussion part of the message right now is because with so much counterfeit out there and in here and in our friend groups and in our family, so much counterfeit knowledge, so much counterfeit truth, I want to make sure that we are constantly aware and growing in the real truth, the truth of God's word. And so I'm going to make a few statements. You decide for yourself whether what I'm saying is true or not. And this really is just your own personal reflection for your own life. If we assume, based on what we just talked about and what we're about to talk about, if we assume things about God's word that aren't true, then we assume things about God that aren't true. True or false? Yeah, agree or disagree? If you assume things about the word of God that aren't true, then... Naturally, you're assuming things about God that aren't true. I'd say, yeah, definitely true. All right, here's another one. So if we aren't learning God's word, then we aren't learning God. I would say if the first one's true, then the second one's true too. How about this? If those, both of those statements are true, then if we don't know God's word, that we don't know God. How about this? If all of those are true in our lives, then that would mean this. And this is summed up for the Bible Belt of Southeast United States of America. So if we've convinced ourselves that we know what God's word says, but we don't spend any time in it, then we've convinced ourselves that we know who God is, even though we don't spend any time with him. Does that sound dangerous to you? Because if all of those statements are true, and yet many of us confess to believe in God, then that really means one thing. If, if our understanding of who God is isn't directly coming out of how he has described himself in his word, then that means we have just kind of formulated who we think God should be. And that, by the way, is just an idol. We don't get credit for just assuming who we think God is based on just a hodgepodge of grabbing bits and pieces of half-truths in our life. And I would venture to say if, 
If we are assuming things of God's word, then we're definitely assuming things of God that aren't true. You know, Pastor Tim Keller, uh, he, he diagnosed part of this issue, in my opinion, um, for the modern age, um, for not only humanity, but Christianity. And he said this statement, I kind of reworded it a little bit for our purposes, but this was the essence of it. He says, we have come a long way from the ancient understanding that we should conform our will to reality. Now we live in a time where we conform reality to our will. I'll say that again for you. Pastor Tim Keller says, we have come a long way from the ancient understanding that we should conform our will, what we believe, what we want, who we think we are, that we should conform our will to reality, what's true, what actually is. Because now we live in a day and age where we conform reality to our will. We redefine what's true all the time, but there can only be one thing that's true. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul warned us that this day was going to come. Uh, he, he knew it was coming, and quite honestly, it was already there. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said it. I recognize he saw this thing coming from afar. This is what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. He says, a time is coming, Grace Bible, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I wonder if that time has come. I wonder. If it is more common to try to bend reality to meet our will and try to bend truth to line up with what I want it to say and believe. Are you among the many? Are we among the many? Is your pastor among the many that have come to a place in his life where we have itching ears to hear what we want to hear? Because we have decided what truth is and now we reach out over social media and Google to try to find scholars and articles that line up what, with what we already believe. Instead of pressing back against our own impulses and bending our will to what is real and going in search of trying to unearth the untruths that we believe. That's probably more uncommon, I would say. But I got to ask you this question. If you were wrong, would you want to know it? Man, I hope I would. I hope I'm not so deeply steeped in my own arrogance that I'm going to spend the rest of my life Believing that every impulse and everything that I think is already true and trying to spend the rest of my life trying to find means and people and resources to fortify what I believe to be true. I want to be the kind of person that constantly looks in the mirror and pushes back against myself and says, why do you feel that way? Why do you think that's so true? Does it line up with the word of God? Can, can you verify it without just hanging one or two Bible verses on it? Can you see a reoccurring theme in the word of God where this is true? Or are we just like picking nuggets out to try to make ourselves feel better? And because we want God to agree with us, we really, many of us have no intent on learning how to agree with God. 
I say we have a ways to go. The word of God is the only way through that. It is the first and most central vehicle of us riding, our arm, riding into the arms of Jesus to come to him. It is a peaceless, restless life to be standing on the foundation that we built for ourselves. Jesus even said that, like, if you're going to build it on your own foundation, that's a foundation of shifting sand. And when the storms blow and the rains come, it's going to fall. I'll prove it to you here in just a minute. Jesus tells us one of the verses I was going to share with you a little bit later. You don't have to put it up on the screen yet because I'm going to, I'm going to re-hit it, Pat. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 14 that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. I want my footers to be made of stone, y'all. Not sand, especially this sugar sand here in Florida. I want it on the rock. The word of God is the foundation of our lives, and it was given as a gift from God to us. Listen, Psalm 119, 105 says this. I'm going to rapid fire through some scriptures for you. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word of God is a faithful guide throughout our lives. Psalm 119, 11 says that I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. The word of God is an accountability partner like no other. John 17, 17, Jesus says to God, sanctify them with the truth because your word is truth. Hebrews 4, 12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And the word of God is powerful, transforming us. When we immerse ourselves into it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God and the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. Anybody else that doesn't fall in that category has built everything they have on the shifting sands of life. John 8, 31 and 32, so Jesus said to these Jews who had believed in him, now Christians, he said to them, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's a famous line from Jesus that often gets hung on to our political banners, doesn't it? It, it gets hung on to our versions of the truth, that we want people to know the truth so the truth can set them free. Jesus says that my word is the truth. That is the truth that will set you free. Matthew 24, 35 says these really timeless and powerful words. It says, heaven and earth will pass away. but my words will never pass away. I know that to be a statement of fact. That the word of God stands no matter what. Nations and religions rise and fall, but there is one that's unfading. The word of God is some of the earliest documentation of the earliest human existence. The people of Israel assembled under the old, old covenant, what we call the Old Testament. Man, they got passed around 
through the centuries from empire to empire to empire. Sometimes they were in charge of themselves. Sometimes they were slaves. There was different world powers throughout the Throughout this tenure of the nation of Israel, there was, there was different world religions that take front and center stage, but like one thing remained true is that those religions and those powers have risen and fallen throughout history, but yet the word of God of the old covenant has remained steadfast and stable, and here it is in the 21st century of America right in front of us today as one of the leading Backbones of human society still to this day. And the new covenant, when things got really good, when God showed up into the story, wrote himself into the story, gave us a brand new covenant with him that started about 2,000 years ago. That was born in the times of the Roman Empire, ancient Rome. And you know what's interesting about even the arrival of the new covenant, yet another, another addition to the timeless words of God. Listen, not a single one of the prevailing religious beliefs of ancient Rome is still in existence today. But yet the word of God still stands. The church of Jesus Christ is exploding all over the world. I know this to be a statement of fact. I actually saw it firsthand. Ansley and I probably four years ago, we got a chance to go to Rome with some friends and walk the streets of Rome and visit some of the ancient relics, and it was pretty awesome. But my favorite experience was probably the one that if you've ever been to Rome, you never saw because it's just kind of like off this beaten path. You know, we're walking through city streets. We had hired this tour guide because we wanted to make sure to hit the stuff we wanted to hit. And we end up walking, we were supposed to meet our tour guide, and it was like this almost back alley street, which I thought, this is kind of weird. And our tour guide finally shows up and they say, all right, follow us. And we walk into this, doesn't look like much, but we open this door like out of this wall and we walk into this beautiful cathedral, this tiny little church that's there in, in Rome that had been built in the 12th century. You didn't notice it was a church from the street, but it was, like I said, it was built in the 12th century. Like it's been around for a while, but it was a stunning little church in the the tour guide began to tell us a story about how in the recent century, one of the pastors or a priest that they had hired would spend hours on end in there praying throughout the day. And he was kind of complaining to the church leadership. He's like, man, when I'm in here in the stillness of night and there's no other noise in the city, he says, I can hear water running. And so, like, they, they just kind of wrote it off or whatever, but he kept, kept bringing it up. So they started thinking he was crazy, and they ended up getting rid of the guy. But then the next priest that came in started speaking of the same thing. Now, they could never hear it. The leaders could never hear it because there was too much noise when other people were there. But in the stillness of night, in the quietness of his prayers, he could hear the water running. He started bringing it up too, and they said, this is crazy. So they started to excavate under their 12th century church, and they found a 4th century church that had been destroyed in, in war, and the 12th century church had been on top of it, and the rushing water sound started getting louder. And so they kept diving down even deeper. And underneath the fourth century church, they found a first century pagan temple that worshiped the god Mithras. And I got to walk down there, and the statue of the idol was still there. It was just wild to be standing in a pagan temple under a church, under a church. 
This was first century Roman pagan temples. So in the days that the gospel was spreading like wildfire throughout Rome, in the days that Paul and the apostles were preaching the gospel and building churches throughout the Roman empire, Mithras was one of the gods that the Romans worshiped. Mithras was one of the reasons why they were killing the Christians. And 21 centuries later, I stood in a church that was still functioning, still declaring the words of God that had been built on top of a church that had been built on top of that pagan temple. And that just went to show me that heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will stand forever. And just to prove a point, God decided, you know what? I'm not just gonna build one church on top of this pagan temple. I'm gonna build two churches on top of this pagan temple. You know, when God gave us this, this isn't just the word of God. These are the words of God meant to transform us, meant to change us. It's a love letter from his heart to ours. And so we're going to talk about practicing the practice. Each week we're going to just talk about some practical rhythms that we can implement into our lives uh, when it comes to the thing we're talking about so you're just not off on your own. Now here's what we're going to do when it comes to studying the Word of God. And we, we encourage you and challenge you into this. We're going to read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts together as a church family from here to the end of the year. All right, through December. Uh, and here is a way that we can do that. We, we've got a couple of resources that are going to help keep us on track together. Let me show you one image that you're probably going to see throughout the lobby. All right, uh, this, this first image is, okay, you're going to see that. Can you show the other one, actually? Do you have the other one on there? We'll come back to that one for sure. So for those of you that are techie and you have your phone, all right, or, or sometimes you use the Bible app or, or an, a, a tablet or something for reading the scriptures. Um, we want you to download this Read Scripture uh, Bible app. That's that, the little square up there is what it'll look like. This is a free resource. Uh, even if you have your smartphone right now, you can pull up a, um, I don't have mine on me. You can just pull up your camera. Don't take a picture of it, okay, for those of y'all that are new to the world of technology. Just pull up your camera and zoom in on that little box on the bottom, and it'll pull up a website for you. It'll take you right to it. Uh, and you can click on that link. We have those same little boxes throughout the lobby. And that's if you like to use a digital version of the Bible. But download this Read Scripture app because our reading plans will kind of line up with that. And what's cool about this is there's some videos uh, as you're going through each book from the Bible Project, which are some brilliant guys that just do an incredible job of teaching the scripture in a very uh, way that you can wrap your hands around. There's little videos that go along with each book of the Bible that will help you understand what it is that you're looking at. Now for uh, each week, we'll probably show you this image, the next image um, that you had up there a second ago at the end. Um, each week we'll change, this is going to take you to our website and we'll have kind of the weekly reading plan for that week um, that you can also find on our website by clicking the come to me banner or you can again use this QR code if you have the photo app on your phone pulled up um, and you'll be able to stay week to week kind of what we'll be reading through together as a church family. Now for those of you that say Dustin I don't use any of that junk I'm more of a hard copy person too. I tried to preach from an iPad once. It was a terrible experience. Couldn't find where I was on the thing or whatever. I got to have like physical paper in my hand. Don't worry, folks. For people like you and me, we have physical copies that were printed out from a printer of our weekly reading plan that you can grab on your way out today. Yeah. I'll have one too. I already have one. Looks like this. All right. I'll be using that during the week for me. But listen. 
Uh, I love you guys. I'm so grateful to be a part of this church family, and we want to run towards the arms of Jesus together. Immersing yourself into the Word of God is one of the most central and critical and important places that we get to meet with Him because this is the revealed Word of God where we get to meet God for who He is and who He said He was. To no longer allow our culture to define for us who He is, but we let Him tell us who He is. And so I encourage you to move towards the Word of God. Join us in this reading plan. And again, as we go through this, we're not searching for answers. We're searching for Jesus week after week after week together. I know it'll be life-changing for those that will commit to it. I love you guys. I hope you have a wonderful week. Let me pray for you and send you out. Lord, I just pray that the voice of God would be loud and clear in the lives of those that would seek you. I remember when you spoke through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel, and you said for those that sought you with their whole heart, they would find you. So God, show us how to seek you well, because we long for you. We want to come to you. We want to be changed by you. I pray that your word of God would come to life to the person that's never picked it up before because they were intimidated. I pray that they would hear the voice of God in powerful ways as they read your words into their life. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, Amen.